gates open, off and stylish sensory state in the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and the High Gang Group. Mitovite has been producing high quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder. Time tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. Bill Prain had mixed emotions as he walked off Warwick Farm Racecourse on Wednesday, November the 28th, 2018, his final day as a racehorse trainer. His two runners, Stately Lord and Victory in Paris, had finished out of a place, which was hardly the swan song he'd been hoping for after 31 years of training and 52 years in the racing game. Bill had been saying for a long time that he'd retire when his loyal client and long-time friend Fred Pisa decided to call it quits. And the worst-case scenario became a reality in 2018 when ill health forced Fred to terminate his involvement as an owner-breeder. The Prain-Pisa partnership was one of Sydney Racing's most enduring. They didn't come up with a champion in their 30 years together but they enjoyed continued success with a string of Fred's homebreds. Bill Prain never intended to become a trainer. When his riding career came to an end in 1987, he had 700 winners on his CV, many of them for high-profile stables. He actually worked as a track work rider for Bernie Kelly, who had set up Fred Pisa's first training operation at Warwick Farm. When Bernie suddenly made the decision to call it quits, Bill was invited to fill the role. He's the first to tell you that it was a classic case of being in the right place at the right time. Bill and Julie Prain are enjoying retirement on the Gold Coast and I'm going to interrupt their quiet Sunday morning to reminisce a little with a true blue native of Parramatta who made a million friends in the New South Wales racing industry. Bill Prain, delighted to catch up, mate. How are you going? Yeah, great, Johnny. Great to talk to you, mate. Had Fred Pisa continued in racing for a few more years, you'd still be training racehorses. You couldn't contemplate a future without your great mate. No, no. I was, John, I always said, you know, as you said in your uh, opening speech, that, uh, you know, after 31 years of being with one owner and sort of Fred gave put everything on the plate and that and I just couldn't um 
consider the thought of training for uh, other people. Although, yeah, you know, when we when we were together, I I did have some few outside horses, but mm. but only you know only a few. But um, no, it was always on the cards, John. When when Fred pulled the pin, I was pulling the pin. He always said to me, "He said, what are you going to do when when I stop?" I said, "Fred, wherever you go, I'm coming too." Good on you. I said, "Because I'm not um, not putting up this." Rat race of um, horse training without um, mm. your knowledge and support. You know, loyalty has always been a very rare commodity in racing, and most weeks it seems you'll hear about a horse being taken from a trainer or a jockey being replaced on a horse he or she have had an association with. But not only did Fred Pisa remain loyal to you for three decades. You tell me there was never a harsh word between you. Uh, never, John. No, no. Mm. We, Fred, we had a sort of a system that every Tuesday he'd um, come to the stable, inspect his horses and that, and, and that. Then we'd, uh, after looking at the horse, we'd go and sit in the house and and talk, sort of set a plan out for each horse and that. Yeah. And yeah, you know, we'd have different opinions here and here and there, but mm. we always managed to come to an amicable um, conclusion at the end of the day. And mm. at the end of the day, the, the owner's paying the bills and yeah. and everything. So, you know, not 99.9% of the time he got his way, but, uh, you know, there was, that, there was that 1% where I got my way too. So, but it worked enormous, John, you know, you just mm. talk about loyalty. Geez, you know, you look up loyalty in the dictionary and you'll see a picture of Fred Peaser there, you know. <laughs> well well put. He must have been a good loser, Bill, because he seemed to understand the vagaries of the game. He could read a race well and he would turn a deaf ear to the inevitable babblings of the coat pullers. Oh, John, yeah, that's one thing I learned very early was, you know, there's good losers and bad losers. There's good winners. There's not too many bad losers, but mm. but Fred always looked on the bright side of things, and you know he was the best loser I've ever, ever known in my 52 years of racing. You know, yeah. He, you don't um, go he to the, on the gym. I'm sorry, Mo, I was going to say you don't go to the races these days, but you can be found in your favourite chair every Saturday afternoon watching the Sky coverage. How do you find yeah. yourself watching races today from a jockey's viewpoint? A trainer's viewpoint, or both? Oh, more so the jockey's viewpoint. Mm. I um, sit there and I can pick a few rides to, to pieces, or <laughs> pat blokes on the back. Or yeah. I'm a great. I rode a few bad races when I was riding, but I haven't rode too many bad races. I've been sitting on that lounge here watching <laughs> them, John. All ten out of ten. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the legendary commentator and former Australian cricket captain, the late Richie Bonneau, you were born and raised in Parramatta. And your mum and dad obviously didn't have television, Billy, because you were one of seven kids. No, no, yeah, there was no, no television, John, in our house, I don't think. But, yeah, <laughs> I was one of, one, of, one of seven, John, and as you said, I was born at Parramatta Hospital and... Uh, yeah, you know, never, never really left the area until, uh, mm. you know, I think the furthest I went away was, well, had a riding scene in Wagga for a while, but, mm. um, 
Oh, always found my way back around Warwick Farm or Parramatta, Rose Hill. Mm. So, yeah, still back barrack for the Earls and we'll get there one day. Your dad, Cole, was a bush jockey in Queensland. He rode a few winners and yeah, he was always yeah. hoping one of his brood would take it on. You were the only one small enough. I was the only one unlucky enough to be small enough, yeah. Yeah, he was... Um, from up around the Rockhampton way, mm-hmm. and um, that was pre-war he rode, and uh, yeah. then he went to war and came back and found mum and they got married, and seven kids later they lived happily until they passed away. Yeah. When did you lose them, Bill? Uh, Dad lost, lost him very young. He was, uh, he was only about 65. Mm-hmm. And mum was only four years ago, John. Oh, dear me. Yeah. Never forgotten them. Now, your mum was responsible for a nickname that you've carried for most of your life and you still (laughs) occasionally get called Bimbo. How did that happen? Oh, John, there was a... I think there was an old old song called Bimbo, Bimbo, Where You Gonna Go, Yo? Correct. And... uh, it was about a kid that had a dog or something. I had a little border collie dog and we used to go everywhere together. Mm. So I mean, that's where that came from, the song and the fact that we having this little little border collie that we, we were inseparable. Yeah. So um, and even today, you know, I d I don't know how it passed on to my grandchildren, but uh they they now call me Bimbo when I um, they think it, they think it's very funny. Sixty years later, it's it's been reborn. The name. Yeah, thanks, Mum. Yeah. <laughs> Bill, I checked, looking... I checked up the history of the song. That song was originally recorded in the nineteen fifties by a great country singer called Jim Reeves, who may have oh, also right. written the lyrics. Oh, he was well oh. known. Really? Well, that's when I was born, John, the 50s, yeah. So, mm. so there we go. When you began your apprenticeship at Rose Hill with Vic Thompson Sr., you weighed yes. 36 kilos. Uh, Vic, yeah. of course, was the grandfather of the Randwick trainer John Thompson and I think the brilliant jockey Hilton Cope had just finished his time with Vic Sr. when you started. That, that's correct, John, yeah. Yeah, well, it come around, um, I just used to knock around Parramatta and that, and I was down Rose Hill one day and I just walked into Mr Thompson's stables and asked him would it be any chance of doing any after-school work or weekend work, and he was more than accommodating and um, mm-hmm. I started off there doing after school and uh, and weekends. It was quite an experience. Yeah. Well, from all reports, you earned every cent of your meagre wages, time off was a rarity, and old Vic had run a tight ship. Oh, there, there's none better than him, John. <laughs> he was – the one thing I – even at the age of 14, one thing I appreciated about him, You'd be up at three thirty every morning, and you'd work to eight o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. But Vic would be there at three thirty, uh, and he'd still be there at eight o'clock at night with you. You know, he set the example. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. He didn't didn't ask you to do anything that he w- wouldn't do himself or or couldn't do himself. You know, he was a he was a hard taskmaster, master, but um, mm. very tough. Great, great horse trainer and a, yeah. and a perfectionist in whatever he did. Yeah. Well, after two years, you became disillusioned uh, at the Thompson Stable, and you felt as though you needed a change. Now, Theo Green was training at Rose Hill back then, and he hadn't yet reached the legendary status he achieved later as a tutor of apprentices. He found a spot for you, and you went straight over the road to Theo, and he had a standard expression he used, Bill, whenever a new apprentice came into the place. Other ex-green apprentices have told me the same story. What was that expression? He said, I can't promise you, son, that I'm going to make you a jockey, but I'll make you a better person. Mm, how true. Yeah, yeah, he was, um, well, it was like going from the outhouse to the penthouse, going from Vicks to Theo's, because mm. at, at the time he had Gordon Spinks, he was leading apprentice, and Ronnie Ronnie was a year, year or two under... Gordon, and then there was me. Yeah. So, yeah, and he always he used to ride his old grey pony alongside you and that, and he'd get to the stage where he, he'd have you ride and work, but he, he'd have you ride and work with Gordon or Ronnie. He said, mm. son, they're, they're the best two apprentices in Sydney. If you can't learn off them, there's nothing I can teach you, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, you learned with the best and tried to pick up what knowledge they had and uh, mm. little take little bits from here and there, but, you know, I never raised to the heights of Gordon or Ronnie, but he'd done one thing. He must have made a better bloke out of me. <laughs> he certainly did. And as I said in the intro, you did ride 700 winners. You, you, yeah. you had a rough idea. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of luck along the way, John. Now, almost a year went by before Theo felt you were ready for your first race ride and you almost got away to a dream start. He put you on tar lad at Gosford. You were still in front, two strides from the post and something flashed up and grabbed you on the line. Yeah, 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 that was a a day to remember. I um, I think it was a horse trained by... Jack Daniels beat me. Keith yep. Bonnyman rode it. Mm. But, um, yeah, the old horse, he, I didn't like him much. He was a big, strong, bloody horse. And yeah. he just used to do what he wanted with me, John. You know, I was, as he said, I was, <laughs> I was about 40 kilos. And well. he, yeah, I think I, my first eight rides on him, I think I ran five seconds. One day he'd lead with me, and the next day he'd get back. and. He just charged, but he always managed to run seconds. So. Yeah, he was in charge. <laughs> yeah, he was in charge of me. I wasn't in yeah. charge of him, I can promise you. Now, Bill, I've got a lovely old photo of a very tiny Billy Prane going onto the track on Tar Lad on the occasion of your first race ride. Don't know where I got it. You may have sent it to me previously. But yeah. I'm going to post it on the website. When we put the podcast up, I'll put on this beautiful photo of old tar lad with Billy Prane on board, you're going out onto the track for your first race ride. Yeah, and Kenny Stone was the strapper leading it. Was he really? Yeah, he ended up 
but he was foreman for Theo and mm. and that but he wasn't at the time. But um yeah, he ended up foreman and, and you know a good student of Theo. I'll have another look at the picture. Now fifty rides went by without a winner, and you were yep. feeling disillusioned when a most unlikely thing happened. Trainer Tom Kennedy put you on yep. a two-year-old filly called Unrecorded at a Warwick Farm Saturday meeting. Now, Bill, not many kids ride their first winner at a Saturday Metropolitan meeting, but you did. Yep, yeah, yeah, no, I was very, very lucky, John. I could, you know, Theo was good. He always used to let us go out and ride work for other people and that after we finished our work. And uh, I used to do a bit of track work for for Tom Kennedy and um, he um, he gave me the ride on her that day. And, yeah, I remember that one. Mm. I've also and got Kenny a Ranger of that. Ken Ranger, yeah. at the time, <coughs> one of Australia's most high-profile rails bookmakers, very flash dresser Ken Ranger, often wore a bow tie. I can still see him on his yeah. stand at Royal Randwick. Did you get to meet Ken Ranger? No, no, I never did. I I won on her, and then he had another good old horse for a bloke called Ron Mead used to train in a Canberra horse called Illusionist. Mm, Bob Mead. Bob Mead. Yeah, dear yep. old Bob, yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, I, I won one or two races on him for Ken. So, mm-hmm. But as you say, no, I never got to meet him. Your first Metropolitan winner for your boss, Theo Green, was a nice horse called Colisee Star. Owned yeah. by one of Theo's best clients, John Bradshaw. And I imagine that one would be among your most precious memories. Yeah, yeah, it was. He was yeah, he was a big, funny, gawky sort of horse, but I think um all of Theo's when I say all of Theo's apprentices, Gordon, Ronnie and myself, all rode our first winners for the boss and John Bradshaw owned the three of them. Uh-huh. So yeah, no, he, he was a great sticker, and Theo had a thing at the time. I want to say the thing, he had a rule that um, any horse coming into the stable, his kids had to ride it. Mm. He wasn't going to take you know, have his apprentices been taken off and um, put somebody else on when he had. Well, at the time, he had the, mm. the leading two leading apprentices in Sydney. Mm. Bill, that horse, Colisee Star. Later won an international jockeys race at Rose Hill. I can remember it as though it were yesterday. Yep. He was yep. ridden I... by an Italian jockey called yep. Gianfranco Dottori. Yep. Frankie Dottori's John... father. Yeah, I led him in. You led the horse. You strapped. You strapped I led... him. Yep. I strapped. I strapped the horse that day. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was a great day, John. Yeah. Mm. He, he obviously was uh, – well, he wouldn't have been invited had he not had a good record in Italy. Yeah. Mm. But, He's but still no, going no. strong, Bill. He's still alive, Gianfranco de Torre. He's really? in his early 80s and still living in Italy and he just monitors the career of his son, Frankie, who's been yeah. a phenomenon, hasn't he? Oh, he's been a freak. Yeah. Well, I didn't – I didn't know – the Tory before he came to ride in that international race, but uh, mm. certainly followed followed um, his son and that. So, mm. No, they were a great racing family. You enjoyed a very successful apprenticeship and you ran second twice on the junior premiership. 
Yep, yep. Ronnie beat me both times at Bludger. <laughs> yeah. He had a habit of doing that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had a habit of beating people. Yeah. You had good connections with many Sydney stables when you came out of your time and you were certainly not short of rides for quite a few years. Now, Bill, one of your favourite trainers was the late Tom Sewell, who was based at Hawkesbury, but he loved to take a truckload of horses to the major country cup carnivals. He was a regular at the big Grafton meeting, and so were you. Yeah, yeah, we used to, um, I think Tom would take about, we had a six-horse float, he'd take 10 or 12 horses to Grafton for the carnival every year. we get there a week before the carnival, John, and save till a week after, but mm. no, geez, you know, I've got some of the fondest moments in racing have definitely been with Tom, you know, he mm. he was, a, there was no halfway of Tom, it was, it was, you know, all in, win, you win, you lose, you, you just lick your wounds and um, move on. fight another day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember one amazing day at Wyong in the early 70s when Tommy Sewell accepted with three horses. Their names were Hosiery, Red Plymouth and Clifton Bridge. W. Prane rode all three and they all won. Now, Tommy loved to bet, as everybody knew at the time, and you tell me he had one hell of a day at Wyon. Yep. Yeah, it was most probably, well, definitely was the most successful day I've had at the races, John. Three rides for three winners, but uh, mm. as, as we mentioned earlier, Tom, was he, he loved his bets and would go to the races. And if we, if we went to Gosford or Wyon, we'd, we'd always stop at the old Claude Faye Cellars on the way home and, <laughs> analyse what I'd done wrong or, or what we'd done wrong or something. There was always an excuse of well, could have been anything if that one had won or if that one had won. But mm. this day we stopped at Claude Fays and he, I had a little Datsun 180B at the time, John, a little butter box and I used yeah. to potter around in that. Mm. Anyway, we were sitting there having a drink at Claude Fays and um, – he said to me, he said, oh, well, Bill, he said, that, that's the best day I've had at the races, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He said, "He said I want you to get the time where one of the horses was owned by a gentleman called Jim Sundell mm. who had Sundell Motors at Chatswood. Yeah. Anyway, he said to me, he said, I want you tomorrow to go over to, to Chatswood and see Jimmy and pick yourself out of a new car. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're kidding. Yeah. He said, no, no, no. He said, no excuses this time. He said, you've done the job. He said, and it was a little six-cylinder red Tirana. I had to be red. I picked <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, no. That, that was my, my most successful day at the races, John. I got a brand-new car out of it. The biggest sling of your career, obviously. Oh, yeah, without, without a doubt. <laughs> Bill, you never won a race on a horse called Bay Cobbler, but you're adamant he was the best horse you ever rode. I think you only rode him in one race for Tommy yeah, Kennedy. Yeah, I did. Mm. Yeah, I did. Johnny, well, he's the best horse ever rode in a race, John, yeah. But yeah. Um, he was just a uh, – well, Tom, Tom, as you said, Tom Kennedy had him and uh, mm. he'd won five in a row, I think, and – 
he broke down his last win and then he, he come back into work 12 months later and because I was only so light, Tom used to put me on him every morning and uh, he gave me the pleasure of riding him one day in a welder at Randwick. Mm. And, uh, no, he was just a magnificent horse by Alcimedes, I think. Mm, I recall he had a big stride. Oh, he, he was a, just a gentleman, Johnny. He, mm. he trot out on him and drop over his neck. He just put his head on his chest. and mm. It was just just like a difference between my old um, Datsun 180B and the Tirana Tom <laughs> gave me. <laughs> yeah. Around 1980. <laughs> You married the lovely Julie Herford, your oh, wife of 42 years and the mother of your three daughters. We'll talk about the kids later. Now, you and Julie made a decision. With the opportunities in town getting scarce, you decided to move to Wagga, a very strong racing region, but within reach of many other tracks. Local trainers embraced you. Yep. Yeah, oh, that was great, John. I think, um, well, when I was in, in Wagga, I, uh, I think there's, not, there's, well, there's one cup I didn't win. I didn't win the Wagga Cup, but I won the Albury Base Hospital Cup. I won the Holbrook Cup. I won the Narandra Cup. I won the Leeton Cup. Mm. But uh, no, they were they were great years, John. You know, we had, um, and my first daughter Bianca was born down there, and um, mm. no. It was a great time. During this period, and I probably shouldn't mention this, but as part of the story, you ran into some strife. You oh, rode a sure two-year-old called Road Jalamo in a 1,000-metre dash at Bathurst. You'd won I on him did. at Canberra previously. He was odds-on at Bathurst. He missed the kick and he was never a hope, although he did get up to finish third. They had you in. They charged you with not allowing him to run on his merits. Twelve months, you were stunned. Yep. Yeah, well, it was, when I say it was funny, John, you said he was slow to move. He jumped and he got squeezed out and, and got back in the race and, um, as you said, he uh, he come home and run third. Mm. But uh, there was an inquiry into the interference early and that, and I said to the stewards, before I left, because you had to, at that time, you had to check in with the stewards and make sure you're right to, to go home. Mm. And I said to the stewards, I said, um, Am I right? They said, Yeah, Mr. Prainer, we've sorted out the interference early and that. You're right. Mm. And two days, two days later, I get a call from, uh, you wouldn't believe it, it was Ned Doherty. Oh, yeah. Ned Doherty. Yeah. Ned, was, <laughs> Ned was one of the stewards and he said, they're, they're opening an inquiry into your handling. I said, okay, Ned. And yeah, subsequently I got 12 months. Which was halved uh, on appeal. It was halved on appeal, John, yeah. It was, um, well, as it, as it turned out, it all eventually, all eventuated in the committee room Mm. I learned later after the races of all everybody was in there having a drink and the owners of Road Jalamo was blowing up and mm. that and the stewards went back and had a look at the film again and decided to charge me. But they say you're not a jockey until you get six months or twelve months of them, but it was something mm. certainly Yeah. Um, well Bill it was halved because of your previous unblemished record. 
he had a marvellous record leading up to that, so they cut it in half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I appealed to the, the um, AJC at the time. We had to appeal to them and they cut it in half for me. So yeah, it was only half as bad, John. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you were back in Sydney riding regular work at Warwick Farm when you posted your final winning ride. The race was called the 2KY Handicap at Randwick in March of 1987. The horse was that sharp, trained by Bernie Kelly. Opportunities, Billy, were drying up. Yep. Yeah, yeah it, was, well, it was getting hard. My weight was, wasn't getting any better than that, John. Um, at, you know, at the time I was, I was going bush meetings of a Saturday and and that and I was neglecting my work around because at the at that time I was I was working in the stables for for Bernie and Fred mm. and it was just interfering with that having time off to go to the races uh, mm. for one or two rides at at Tumut or Goulburn or wherever and mm. I just decided to uh, pull the pin on it. Mm. Well, we'll just take a break for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll be back with you after this. The Australian Turf Club and Racing New South Wales proudly present the Championships 2022 commencing at Royal Randwick on Saturday, April 2nd. This elite program will be highlighted by four Group 1s, three of which had their beginnings in the mid-19th century. The jewel in the crown is the star Doncaster, boasting prize money of $3 million. Co-features will be the $2 million Bentley Australian Derby, the $2.5 million TJ Smith and the time-honoured English size produce stakes for the two-year-olds who were just warming up at the end of the Golden Slipper. Throw in the New Haven Park Country Championship final, the chairman's quality, the Witten Stakes, the Adrian Knox and the Carbide Club and you can see it is a magnificent race day. Saturday, April 2nd, Doncaster and Derby Day at Royal Randwick. My special guest is Billy Prain. Well, you slowly phased yourself out of race riding and you went to work in the hospitality industry for a while and, Bill, <laughs> you've probably <laughs> forgotten this, but I haven't. I walked into the Cabramatta Leagues Club one night for a, <laughs> for a charity function. I went to the bar to get a beer, and who should be behind the bar was Billy Prane. I nearly fell over. <laughs> <laughs> and you were good was, at it. You were good at it. Oh, I don't think I was that good, John. We, they were pretty, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I worked there a couple of two years or something. Well, it was at the time John was... You know, I was married and I I um, had kids and I, I had to support them some way and mm. at the time a friend of mine was associated with the Leagues Club and he said, well, you know, you ever pulled a beer? I said, no, but I can learn. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I ended up there for two years at the Cabin Middle Leagues Club. So mm. uh, that was another part of my life that I'd rather forget. Well, I can vouch for the authenticity of the story because I saw you in action. <coughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, three o'clock in the morning finishes. And, oh, yeah. And that used to knock me about a bit, but mm. no, that was another part that, you know, you just got to do, John, when you've got a family and kids and that. You, yeah. 
got to put bread and butter on the table. Well, soon after, you heard on the grapevine that Bernie Kelly had been appointed contract trainer for Fred Peter, who had established the Lomar Park Stud at Warombi and was racing a lot of his own horses. You also heard that Fred was looking for an assistant for Bernie Kelly. Yeah, well, when I say that was funny, um, I was a must have been one of my rare rides at, at Ranwick, and uh, I, but I was talking to Billy Kamer, who was a great, great friend and a, a great, great rider, mm. and he was a good friend of Fred's. Yeah, he. Actually, he rode um, Fred, one of Fred's best horses, Sovereign Slipper, I think. Yes, he did. Ran third in the Golden Slipper. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And Billy said to me, he said, look, he said, a mate of mine's doing this, doing that. He said, would you be interested in going and giving him a hand? And I, I said, yeah. And he said, here's the bloke's number, give him a call. And mm. I, I rang Fred and uh, we met in Parramatta and had a few drinks and that. And that's how the association all started, through Billy Kamer. Fred was never able to find a Dane Hill for Lomar Park, but he did a terrific job selecting more modestly priced stallions who would go on to make names for themselves. Names like Lur Cadonier, Steel Pulse, Mr C, Arch Regent. Arena was probably one of his later ones. They all yep. got a million winners and between them they produced a number of pretty good horses. Fred turned out to be very astute at the caper, didn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he always said to me, he said, I, he said, I don't want to breed them million-dollar horses and this and that, which I'm sure he would have loved to have, mm. but he said he, he just wanted the, the bread-and-butter market. Mm. And as you say, well, Lee Cadonia was undoubtedly his, uh, his greatest asset. Mm. Because of he, when he was his first stallion when he set up the stud, and he yeah. his first runner in Sydney was Sovereign Slipper, the duly won the Breeders' Plate. Mm. His first runner in Melbourne was a filly called Sabot that won the Maribyrnong Plate. Yeah. And the rest is history. They just won time after time after time. Shaney Walk and mm. and them sort of horses. And uh, no, he was always um, pretty astute and. And a good eye for a, for a stallion there for a good while. Mm. Bernie Kelly produced a surprise when he suddenly resigned and you became caretaker trainer for a while and you were probably a little bit intimidated when Fred Pisa offered you the full-time role because you never intended to train in your own right. No, no. I, I, was, uh, I was pleased that he... He acknowledged that the work that I'd done around the, the stables and mm. the hours I'd put in on that, but I'd never really ever wanted – if I if I had one problem as a rider, I wasn't really dedicated, John. Mm. I was, yeah, good time, enjoy yourself, whilst it lasts and that. Yeah. And I always thought, well, you know, if you train her seven days a week, it's this, it's that, and – a lot of heartache, a lot of good times and that, but, you know, I said, well. Scared the hell out of you. Said, it did. It <laughs> did, John. Eh? I thought, geez, how am I going to, you know. Mm. But 
you know, 30 years later, I was still going at it. Yeah, I'll say, <laughs> in early 1994, a lovely arch region filly out of the Lurkadonier mare arrived in your stable from Lomar Park. Freddie called her moment's pleasure. She ran three yep. seconds from her first four, then she won at Warwick Farm, and then you took her to Newcastle for, it must have been that race they called the Penfolds Classic, was it, in those days? That, no, at the time, John, it was hmm? the Coca-Cola Classic. Ah, oh, was it? They changed the sport. It was later yep. changed the Penfolds as, as they do, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, that was, well, that was the start of a, a bit of a roll. I'd only been training a couple of years and I went, went to Newcastle. Well, Corey had won on her at Warwick Farm mm. and um, he was 16 at the time, I think. Good heavens, yeah. And it was a Group 3 race at the time and um, he, uh, he, Trish, Trish was his manager at the time mm. and she said, are you going to put Corey on that filly at Newcastle? I said, well... Why not? Yeah, you know, they they work well together and that. So I went there and only trained for two years, had a sixteen year old kid on and mm. no, she was she done the done the job for us. Oh yeah, but Corey at sixteen had a head like a much older rider, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was you know, even you know, through all of our bloody associations and you know from the time he um, well, he won on her, yeah, and even today we're we're good friends. My daughter was bridesmaid at his wedding. Oh yeah, and yeah, you know, know it's been a great friendship, and you know it was a great tragedy when he bloody had to retire. But certainly was, but he's making his mark now in racing media, doing a terrific job. Yeah, 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 but. You know, the kid I met when he was 16 is the bloke that he is today. Mm. He never, ever changed, John. No. He, no. you know, he, he, even, you know, he, from Wingham, he, he still goes back for the Wingham Cup every year. Yeah, never changed. You can't take the bush out of the boy. No, yeah. Well, we've, we've tried plenty of times, but no, he keeps on going back. Yeah. Bill, your heart sank when moments pleasure came up with the nightmare barrier in the Golden Slipper. <sighs> Gate 16. Impossible. She finished seventh, five and a yep. half lengths from Dan Zero, won that one. Yep. Yeah. No, yeah. That I hardly ever gave Corey instructions and I blame myself that day. That I said, mate, there's only two things we can do. We can either jump out and hunt the ears off her and get to the 600 metres and be burnt out or mm. or just go back and ride for luck. Yeah. And, um, well, he did go back and ride for luck and didn't have any, but, no. you know, it, um, I might as well have been better off telling him to dig her up and, and get a midfield somewhere because she finished the race off enormous, John. You know, yeah, I still yeah. think had she, had she drawn a barrier that year, mm. she would have been right in the finish, you know. Yeah, yeah plenty agreed with you at the time. You know, she never won again after the Risling Slipper trial, but she ran several seconds in stakes races. Oh. And, Bill, what about the Group 1 Winfield Classic when she had it absolutely shot to bits and <sighs> Jimmy Cassidy on a mare called Flitter got a freak rails run to grab you on the line? 
Yeah, that was another day. She drew 18, John, that day. Mm. <laughs> she tracked three or four wide all the way and and, that, and as you say, she was home and and Jimmy got up on the on the line and bloody uh, pipped her and pipped her nose. It, um, yeah, it was probably one of the worst days I had at the races, but um, <laughs> I'll never forget her because I, I, I rode for the gentleman and that, Arthur Baxter, who owned uh, yeah. Flitter. Mm. And like like Freddie was a breeder and this and that. And Anyway, we, I'm standing in the second stall and Arthur came over and patted me on the back. He said, oh, bad luck, son. He said, but I needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> he he wasn't too sincere, but I thought it was nice. Yeah, Arthur's passed on, of course. He was a, yep. He was a great old bloke. I used to run into him from time to time. He lived in my district a few oh, years right. ago, and uh, he'd pop in for a cup of tea every now and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd drive himself everywhere and that. And mm. it's funny when a, when a lot of the old. Owners that time had drivers, and that Arthur used to drive himself to the races all the time. And mm. unfortunately, I think he had a heart attack driving himself to the races one day, and that's when he, he passed. Exactly right. He was on his way to Wyong. He, actually, he may have been on his way home from Wyong. Yeah. Uh, when he yeah. blacked out, and he actually mounted the uh, the island. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and went right across the island in the middle of the road there. And Matt. I think he hit a telegraph pole. It was very sad. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. But anyway, uh, that was the Arthur Baxter story. Freddie sent you another arts region filly at the end of 1996, a very quick little filly by the name of Regal Chamber. She burst into slipper contention with a brilliant win in the magic night, but like moments pleasure, she copped a nightmare barrier. Bill, she still yep. had her head in front, 150 metres out before finishing third to Guineas. Yep, yep. Yeah, she was a, for I say, she was a, she wouldn't have been, she was probably been 15 hands, John. Mm. But she was a little chunky thing and had unbelievable speed. <clears throat> and um, I remember, because Chrissy, Chrissy Munts, won the magic night on her. Anyway, I said to him prior to the slipper, I was standing in closure, I said, well, what are you going to do, Chris, you know? I said, you're drawing the outside. Yeah. He said, mate, he said, she'll lead. She'll lead on her ear. Mm. Anyway, I said, well, if, you, if that's what you think you can do, you're better off doing it, mate. You know, yeah. I wasn't going to fall into that trap of going back again. No. And... Um, yeah, well, she ran her first three in 33 or something that day, John. She oh, just scorched yeah. across from the outside. And yeah. As you said, 150 out, she was still giving plenty of cheek and and that, but um, she's another one. I think had she drawn a bagger and he could have saved her a bit, mm. she might have finished a bit closer. Two that got away, possibly. Possibly, yeah. Clary always wins. He's always would have won the slipper if, Shane never hit, him, hit it with a whip and pig rooted or something. I said, well, you wouldn't have won close if I drew, drew yeah. a barrier. But you, yeah, you're talking about encounter. Encounter, yeah. yeah, yeah he he threw it away, Shane. didn't he? Threw it away. Yeah, he ducked out there. But, but yeah. anyway, that, that was Clary's gripe, but I had my put my pennies worth in as well. Bill, you'd been feeling unwell for quite some time. 
during the Regal Chamber era, but you continued to ignore the symptoms. Julie eventually had to drag you to the doctor, who, following tests, gave you the news you were dreading. Colon yep. cancer was the, uh, the culprit, but by the time uh, you got there, it had spread to other areas and you were in desperate need of surgery. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a shock. But, um, yeah, how it all come about, John. Julie dragged me to the doctor. She was just sick and tired of me whinging how mm. I was fatigued, but I put that down to the hours you were working. Uh, I was passing a lot of blood, but I put that down to that um, I'd had hemorrhoids in the past and yeah. and just ignoring the, what I know now were the, the symptoms of colon or bowel cancer. You know, it was just mm. – uh, and as I said, she dragged me to the doctors and they um, done a few – she was done a blood test and mm. come back two days later and she said, you better come back in and see me. Mm. And the blood was all out of whack and everything. And so she she booked me in to see um, a surgeon at, at Liverpool. Mm. And I, I was a bit worried, John, because he was, he was Irish. Yes. I was, and he was a redhead. <laughs> a red, you wouldn't believe I had a red-headed Irish bowel surgeon. So you, you were uneasy. Anyway, <laughs> uneasy. I was very uneasy. Anyway, he said, well, better you know, give you a colonoscopy first. And mm. then they, they done the colonoscopy and uh, they found a massive tumour on my colon and that. Mm-hmm. And two days later, he... Uh, he had me on the table. And did the job well? He he did, yeah. Actually, I was worried over nothing because he, he was a doctor called uh, Sagrew, mm. Michael Sagrew, mm. and he ended up the head of um, Liverpool Hospital Emergency Service. So mm. not only did he do a good job on me, mm. but he also um, ran Liverpool Hospital very well in the, mm. in the latter years. Mm. Bill? Then came the hard part, the unrelenting ordeal of chemotherapy. You were getting injections every week for a long yep. time. Yeah, yeah. The the operation was a was a breeze, John. Mm. Uh, as I say, they cut me from my belly button right right down and removed ten ten foot of my bowel, mm. and the. Growth had become so big it had just attached itself to it was starting to attach itself to my liver. Mm-hmm. So he had to take uh, half of my liver, mm-hmm. and but they kept me pretty well sedated and and that so I didn't feel anything from that. But then he come around and he said, "Look," he said, he sent an uh, an oncologist around. And he said, "Look," he said, "We think we've got everything, but there was a few lymph nodes." That, they were worried about. They said you would like to start your chemotherapy, mm. and I'd heard a lot about chemotherapy, and I wasn't that wrapped in it. But I decided, that, well, it's, if that's what you thought, you better go ahead and do it. So mm. every Tuesday from for twelve months, mm. I had them um, awful injections, and yeah, you know, that made you crook and that John, but. 
look, everything in, had done the job, and all I can tell anybody, anybody listening to this, yeah. is if you get any signs or you had anything similar to what I had or something not right with yourself, get moving. Don't, don't be a pighead like me and mm. and uh, just think it's going to go away because it's not. It's only going to get worse. Mm. And had I waited another month or two, the doctors told me personally, he said it would have been inoperable. Mm. He said it would have went through your whole body. Good. So, so if I've done anything, I hope I've convinced somebody that might be sitting out there wondering bloody why they're not feeling well. Mm. Just, just go to the doctor, get a blood test, and it ain't that bad. Mm. Well, Billy, just, 25 years have gone by since you received that original diagnosis, and here you are talking to me on a podcast in 2022. It wasn't time for you. Nah, nah. Only, only the good go, young Jono, and <laughs> and um, yeah, a lot of they had a benefit night for me, and. Um, at Mount Pritchard, and a lot, lot of the tra- lot of the people were there. They they wanted their money back after I survived. <laughs> I remember the night. Yeah, I said, oh, I said yeah. I'm sorry for living, <laughs> but no, they're only joking at that. Oh, of course. And they said um, we we want our money back, but no, nah, there was no money back. It was all gone. <laughs> now, Billy, give me a rundown on the girls and their subsequent produce. Oh, yeah. They're, they're me pride, John. Yep. Bianca, who is 40, she's got a little daughter. Yeah. Uh, Piper, yeah. She, she was in the Navy, John, for for 20, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then when COVID struck, she, she went to New South Wales Health to help them out with their contact tracing yep. and con- um, New South Wales offered a position at Royal North Shore Hospital as the head of the hepatitis division of yep. Royal North Shore Hospital. So He's a good girl. And she's Piper's she's, mum? She's Piper's mum, yeah. Mm. She's doing that, her and Piper. They're coming up at Easter. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got Chantel. Yep. She's uh, my middle daughter. She's uh works for a wholesale electrical company. She's yep. got three children. She's got Jet. Jet who's a, a wakeboard champion. Yeah. He actually went to um America for wakeboarding and run third in the world title of wakeboarding. Yeah, inherits all of this ability from Par, of course. Oh, must have John, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't swim, so I don't know how he, how he got me wake wakeboarding, but and the third girl? And the third girl's yeah, she's a she's a gem. Uh Miss Candace. Yeah. She's a police officer. Yeah, me. Yeah, that's a mixture, isn't it? I mm. always thought there'd be more more chance for me getting arrested by one than <laughs> having having one in the family. Yes, I'd say. But uh, oh, her her and her partner are just expecting their first child. Yeah. She she's been a in the force for 12 years. Yeah. And she's now a detective at, at Campsie Police Station. Yeah. And uh, that's about, that's all me, my little John anyway. Now, Billy they're just. All, they've uh, all done me, 
You've just, done me proud. Just give me the names of Jet's siblings. If we don't mention their names, we'll get into trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Jet and Chase is the middle one. Yeah. And Portia. Good boy. Lovely old name, Portia, from one of the great Shakespearean works, The Merchant of Venice. Yeah, so, so I've learned since you <laughs> brought that to my attention. Billy, I've had several requests uh, to have you on as a podcast guest and I'm really pleased we've finally been able to arrange it. Racing was good to you, mate. We all know that. But by golly, you were good for racing. Congratulations on a wonderful contribution. Lovely to talk on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30 mil of Recuperate drawn from the 500 mil bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase.